Let me just get somebody on the, on the uh, line. Hi, is the caller there? Is the caller there? Can you hear me? Yes, go right ahead. Uh, I think, is there a caller there? Yes. You wanted to say. Yes, my mother was into Hitler. You Are you there, caller? Yes, I am. What do you think? I think this is great. Are you there, caller? Would you approve of your... uh, From WBEZ Chicago, this is Making Oprah. I'm Jen White, and I'm here today with a couple of members of the Making Oprah team, executive producer Joel Meyer. Hello. And producer extraordinaire Colin McNulty. Yay! Hello. <laughs> That's probably my favorite, like one of my favorite moments when you go, yay. Yay. Oh, so we got Oprah. Yay. yay. <laughs> the yay heard round the interwebs. Right. So this is the final bonus episode of Making Oprah. I know my heart is breaking too. And because it's the last episode, we wanted to look back at one of our favorite interviews of the entire series. And it's not Oprah. <laughs> It's one of our favorites. Oprah's our favorite. We just want to make that clear. But this interview was actually really essential to the overall piece. And it's the interview we did with Phil Donahue. Why is Phil Donahue so important, you ask? We're going to explain that. But first, we've got to get this off to a proper start, right, Joel? Yeah. And Jen, at the top, you did issue a little disclaimer. But I I just want to say, if you're downloading Making Oprah and listening to us now, expecting to hear a lot of Oprah Winfrey the way that you have across the uh, the three episodes of the podcast and the other two bonus segments that we did, there's not going to be a lot of Oprah in this. There is, however, going to be a lot of Phil Donahue. <laughs> Which you're very excited about. I'm really excited <laughs> about, yeah. But, but it's important, I think, to talk about Phil Donahue because he laid the groundwork for what would eventually become the Oprah Winfrey show. Yeah, Colin, I think you should tell the uninitiated who is Phil Donahue, but really what was Phil Donahue? Phil Donahue is sort of the first person to do a daytime talk show in a way that Oprah Winfrey eventually would be doing it. So he started in 1967 in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, It's the longest running syndicated daytime talk show in American history. It ended in 1996. How many shows did he do in the end? Over 5,000 shows. That's crazy. But he was going, so 1967 to 1986, so he was going for like a good almost 20 years before Oprah Winfrey sort of went national. And she basically borrowed his format, which she like admits pretty uh, mm-hmm. easily that I, she took the format yeah. and just it was just a different host. Yeah, she borrowed it and, and kind of built, I think, built on it some. Mm-hmm. And there was actually a period of time when they were both in Chicago. Right. His show was national. Hers was still local. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Am Chicago and just was being called the Oprah Winfrey show, mm-hmm. but it was still a local show. But there was competition between them and the Chicago market at that time because she was winning in the Chicago market, right. even though he was uh, a national, national uh, yeah, nationally syndicated. Mm-hmm. So they have a lot of shared history. But it's clear in talking to both of them that they also have a lot of respect for one another. Mm -hmm. For me, I really loved finding out how important Chicago was to talk show history. That like Donahue was here in the 1970s and then Oprah was here for 25 years. That Chicago was so important to the development of this thing that we kind of sort of just take for granted. We're like, "It's it's a talk show. But Chicago really was the place to do a talk show the way that Donahue did and Oprah did. Uh, for for so many years. And they both talk about like because it's not New York and because it's not L.A., it feels a little bit more sort of middle America to be producing it out of Chicago. And you get people in the studio audience or people calling in that aren't are a bit more representative of the whole country. He's this really interesting figure to me because he is this 
guy from like small town Ohio. Hey, he's from Cleveland, which is oh, dang. <laughs> which isn't small, t- which is not small town Ohio. Let me rephrase. Yeah. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> Phil Donahue was from Ohio, right? Cleveland, the, bu- the bustling Cleveland, metropolis, from right. the bustling metropolis, Berlin, Paris, <laughs> Cleveland. Um, which, but, which is where I'm from, I should say. I know as, that's as why. Well. That's why he hit a tender spot. Yeah, thank I you. Tried, <laughs> yeah, do so not sorry. disc Cleveland. <laughs> he is Flying remarkably cars. clear-eyed. I think about his evolution as a talk show host, which I really enjoyed. You know, he he doesn't seem to have a lot of um, sentimentality about it, and I find that really fascinating, considering that he's had this pretty extraordinary career by any measure, mm-hmm. but he's very clear-eyed about who he was when he started and how he changed as a talk show host over the over those years. For all the reasons that you, Jen, and you, Colin, have uh, listed that this is a great interview. It's super insightful. He's really candid, uh, really upfront. That's one reason that we wanted to play this interview almost in its entirety. The other reason we wanted to play it is Phil Donahue is a total character. <laughs> like, you can hear the leather chair squeaking. I think right. at, at points you can hear, like, Manhattan in the background, which <laughs> right. is like kind of a nice ambiance a little bit. But yeah. then also just in... That Donahue voice, that trademark way of speaking, he's just a total character. Like one thing I wanted to mention before we get into it is that um, I grew up kind of with Phil Donahue in the 1980s, but I probably knew Phil Donahue better through Phil Hartman's impression Ah. of Phil Donahue on Saturday Night Live. So I brought along a couple of things that I wanted to play for you. I'm not sure if you've heard this. This is uh, is uh, a very short clip. This is a fake commercial for Donahue from SNL. You can barely walk, you can't concentrate on your work, you feel like you're going insane. When your shoelace is caught inside your shoe on the next time. <laughs> Uh, he is like I mean That's Phil, so spot on. I mean, I'm sorry, Phil, Phil Hartman. Hartman. I mean, is he is That's my favorite great. cast member of all time of SNL? But for some reason, the blend of like Phil Hartman's abilities and <laughs> Phil Donahue's, it just it was like this unique thing. And okay, so I love one thing I love about Donahue, having spent a little bit of time with YouTube clips of the show uh-huh. uh, leading up to this podcast today, is I'm someone that has produced talk shows for a really long time and. The way that the Donahue show uh, opened, at least for a period of time, is totally insane. It's like a cold open. He's just there with the mic looking at the camera, <laughs> not reading from a script and kind of just riffing about what they're going to talk about during that. So he's like, you know, he'll kind of stumble over words and stuff like that. And it's really off the top of his head. It's really refreshing, I have to say. <laughs> and so uh, Phil Hartman in another sketch kind of like lampoons that style of him just like asking rhetorical questions <laughs> for like about two minutes. So uh, here's, here's uh, how one of the sketches started. Sex is good. (laughs) It's fun. It's good exercise. It brings you closer to your partner. It's a basic human need, and without it, we wouldn't even be here. (laughs) But sex is messy. It's hard work. It's expensive. It can be extremely embarrassing. And as we've recently seen, it can kill you. (laughs) Okay, so I have to say, one of the fun things about Phil Donahue and Phil Hartman's impression of Phil Donahue, if you don't know who this man is, you need to Google him and just see, like, 
pull up a YouTube clip, look at an image because you're talking about this guy who I think has had white hair since he was 12. Right. His hair Born is it. it's just like this this helmet of white hair and he has this sort of slightly it's not that he's messy, but disheveled, kind of slightly exhausted, like just kind of like, oh, for Pete's sake, like that's his general error. And and it's hilarious. No matter what he's talking about, that's the vibe he gives off. And you can hear it in the Phil Hartman clip. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, you know, if you don't know the show, one thing that's interesting about Donahue is that like he just kind of did everything in the same way that I think Oprah did, as we've learned in our podcast. But like, he did everything from uh, you know having the usual celebrities on to talking about pretty sensitive issues like gay marriage to just like kind of really zany stuff. There is a Donahue 25th anniversary special that you can find on YouTube that is nuts. It is bonkers. <laughs> and that's all I will say. You should just go look at it. It was like a primetime special that they did as a, like a salute to Donahue. It's totally insane. And it's got like every celebrity from the early 80s you can think of. Yeah. Right? like It's like everybody. It's like everybody. All the people. Yeah, so I encourage Everyone you to, with big hair. I encourage you to, to, to seek it out. But um, I think that this is a really pretty interesting insight into the er world of the talk show before Oprah. So even though you won't hear a lot of Oprah in this, you will hear um, somebody talking about doing some pioneering work, but also being pretty humble about it. And I think being pretty candid about the fact that they were just kind of making it up as they, as they went. And I think that's a really interesting way to hear somebody talk about their work. Well, that seems like a good place to start and get into the interview. Yeah, but Jen, there's there's one thing we have to do first. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Making Donahue. We're going to meet these parents and we will continue to look at moshing when we come back in just a moment. These people are gypsies. Listen, listen. Didn't go with all the rubber gloves and all that? They're crazy about you. As you look back on it now, is it possible that you drove your mother crazy? I don't know, I'm asking. And here she is, Cher. Please welcome Elton John. I love you to death. Here's River Phoenix. As a beautiful 16-month-old daughter married to Lenny Kravitz, here is Lisa Bonet. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Betty Davis. I am pleased to uh, once again... Uh, play host to uh, Milton Friedman. You can ask her anything you wish, and we'll give you that <laughs> opportunity as we guest with Liza Minnelli in New York City. Yes, we really are identical twin brothers. So just to get started, Mr. Donahue, you know, we've talked to a lot of people about what it takes to produce a daily talk show. What do you think the biggest challenges are? Well, my goodness. Um... They certainly are there. I mean, uh, there's nothing quite like uh, it being Tuesday and you don't have a guest for Wednesday. So, you know, there's a lot of nerve-wracking experiences. But most of all, it's, I think uh, the biggest challenge is staying current. And in my case, I was on at 10.30 in the morning, and this was the 1960s, the old world where... So many women were at home and their husbands working. And so we knew that the audience was predominantly female. And we also knew that we were very visually dull. I mean, two talking hits. Uh, just, you know, uh, nobody could figure us out. And we knew that the only way we could survive would be featuring issues about which our viewers cared we felt we had to make them mad, sad, or glad, or we would not survive in Dayton, Ohio, which is uh, where we were. With, and this was a local show. We were in no other cities. 
And that's we. Our first guest was Madeline Murray O'Hare, the atheist who was part of the lawsuit that banned the official reading of prayer in public schools, and she was called the most hated woman in America. You know, she came on and put her elbows on the table and leaned across almost in my face, and she said, there are no angels, there is no heaven, there's no God. When you die, you go in the ground, you biodegrade, and you become part of the physical universe. This is the first show. Well, I I mean, my dear, the building fell down in Dayton, Ohio. (laughs) Sponsors canceled. I got lots of holy pictures. I think people are still praying for me in Dayton, Ohio. And everybody knew there was this new show on WLWD. You know, not that I wasn't grateful. I mean, we were very, very lucky. We had a general manager who didn't drop his tools and run. We did a program in our one of the early weeks that we were on the air on the anatomically correct doll. I mean, actually, some company made the anatomy. So the male doll would have this little tallywhacker between his <laughs> legs. And I held the doll up without a diaper. And I said, do you think this is objectionable for children? If you do, call Baldwin 6 If you do not, call Baldwin 7 Well, the entire Baldwin exchange went out and it collapsed in Dayton and the telephone company was panicked. I mean, you know, people couldn't call an ambulance. I mean, you know, it's not funny. You can really. Um, That's what got us here. That's what got us from Dayton, Ohio, which only had one airport and a town that movie stars are not going to fly to to be on a show they never heard of. And that's what lifted us off the ground and got us to Chicago, where we had two airports, and it was a lot easier to get there. And, and, and then finally we, we did arrive in Hollywood. We, we aired in California. From Chicago, you're now in touch with Donahue. Flamboyant rock singer-pianist Elton John joins Phil on today's Donahue. Now, by the time you came to Chicago in 1974, you were syndicated, and you, you're credited with the creation of, of smart talk. What was your vision for the show by the time you got here? Were you still on that same track? I, I think so. I, You know, it worked in... I'm sincere when I'm saying to you that we were very nervous about whether we would survive. We were up against, you know, Marty Hall, who was giving away $5,000 to a woman dressed like a chicken salad sandwich. <laughs> and I'm, I'm interviewing one other person. And, you know, there's a limit to that kind of excitement. So in Chicago, once you went syndicated, did you think that same model would work for I a really larger did. audience? I really did. And it's important to remember that we, 
we were very different. Nobody's program on television at that time was doing this kind of material. Everything was either ha-ha, hee-hee, laugh-laugh, win a prize, spinning wheels, come on down. And, you know, we, we had our first gay guy on in the first week of our show. And we obviously we put a gay guy on when we went to Chicago, too. And, you know, th- and nobody was out dur- at this time. You know, we had, by the time we had our third or fourth show with gay people, we realized we were meeting a lot of nice people. And, of course, I thought I would lose my career because people would figure that I'm queer. And uh, a woman in downtown Chicago said, well, who's your friend? Uh, homophobia was everywhere. And then to look up now and, you know, gay marriage. And uh, I mean, it, it's staggering when I think of the warp speed of this revolution. And I'm, I guess if, if you think I'm bragging, I, I am. I'm very <laughs> proud. And so is everybody in our office. It seems like you could have chosen, considering what else was happening in the television landscape at that point, you could have chosen an easier route for the show. You could have gone with the hee-hee-ha-ha lighter stuff. Why did you think it was important to bring some of the issues you were bringing forth to the audience? Well, remember, this was the, uh, these were the early t- days of the women's movement. The women's movement was rolling down the runway. Maybe hadn't quite become airborne, but it was a great topic of conversation at the time. And then I married a feminist. And, you know, I remember a, a Gloria Steinem looking at me on the air and saying, children in this country get too much mother and not enough father. And I thought, holy cow, they're talking about me. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing what an education this was for the nice Catholic boy from OLA on Cleveland's West Side, Our Lady of Angels School, and then Notre Dame. Hmm. So with 12 years of Catholic education, 16 years actually, I was, you know, we did the first show on AIDS we did the first show on priest and uh, the church scandal with pedophilia. And we felt this was a huge scandal. It was the church's Watergate and that it should be discussed. You know, and um, we did a lot of uh, programs on, we did our first trans program in the early 80s. And we took a lot of, incoming from that a lot of uh, and now it's above the fold first page one new york times it sounds like part of this was you taking the audience with you on a journey of personal discovery and education well uh, jennifer the uh, it took us not very long to realize that there would be no donahue show without the studio audience the best shows were the ones where we had to fight the audience off, where a community developed between me and the guests and the audience. And uh, it was a wonderful ride. I, I would wish it on anybody I love. Well, 
let's skip ahead a little bit. Do you remember the first time you heard about Oprah Winfrey? Let me think. As you know, I'm a brilliant man. I I just can't (laughs) always remember where I parked my car. Well, it certainly was in New York. We, We were in Chicago from 74 to 84, and we were in New York from 84 to 96. But it was somewhere in that area that suddenly loomed this woman that everybody was talking about. So this is what I was talking about, him being really clear-eyed about Mm -hmm. his experience as a host. He realized while he was making the show that he had certain blind spots Mm -hmm. and I think having that perspective as a host is really is really important. I think it helps you do your job a little better if you realize like, oh, that's right. I don't know. I don't know everything. Yeah. You know, he says he sort of says, like, I, you know, I was I learned a lot. I it was a it was an education for me. Mm-hmm. What's amazing, the way that he talks about these moments on his show where he has this imagery of like Emmeline O'Hare puts her elbows on the table, leans into the microphone and says, there is no God. We all biodegrade, yada, yada, yada. And then he's talking about the tallywhacker thing, which actually made, I think made the, the documentary. It was like, and I, I held the doll up uh-huh. and said, do you think this is objectionable to children? And the way he just leans into the mic and makes this into these really, it feels like these really powerful cultural moments that he's talking about that he was sort of leading. But he's like talking about, he's talking about in such a casual way and like saying words like tallywhacker <laughs> right. and all that. So it's like, it feels really important, the stuff he's talking about, the way, but the way that he talks about it is just so kind of funny and so sort of like, I don't know, really humble of him. And it's just like, it just makes for a really good tape. But there's yeah. something really fun about his delivery too. It, no matter what he's talking about, he can make right. it sound him. And so I took the plate of pancakes and I said, <laughs> do you want maple syrup or the blueberry infused syrup? And you're like, it's got to be the maple. Like it all has, right. the, it carries that weight when he does that delivery. I think, you know, in contrast to Oprah Winfrey, you know, Phil Donahue is older. He's more like my parents' generation. He's now, mm-hmm. I think, about 80. 80 yeah. years old, yeah. And so he's really a creature of the 1960s and 70s. And I think mm-hmm. as he talks about his own you know, kind of coming of age on the show and learning from things like that. I really hear a lot of my parents and their friends and uh, other members of their generation talking about sort of like ideological changes that they went through in the Mm -hmm, 60s and 70s as they learned more about all the other Americans that were around them. And he talks about gay marriage. He talks about uh, having, you know, doing his first trans show, having uh, gay people on the show. Feminism. Yeah. Those are all things that I think for like people of my parents' generation, like those were doors that had to be open for them and they sort of had to navigate that themselves. And I think it's really interesting to hear Donahue talking about that same way, but doing it in front of the cameras for several decades. You know, at the end of that interview, Donahue says... The most important part was the studio audience and the best shows were the ones where I had to fight the studio audience off and a community developed between me and the audience. And you have the studio audience, which is sort of like a stand in for the viewers, for all these people, you know, seeing these sort of of normal Americans talking about these big issues. And he's sort of staging this this democratic sort of conversation where he's facilitating between the people on the stage and the people in the studio audience. And it's just creates chaos every once in a while, but it also creates this really riveting TV. And that was the beginning of that. That was him. His idea was to get the studio audience. I don't know if it was his original idea, but that's the sort of format for 
all of daytime TV that followed. We had Geraldo Rivera and Jenny Jones all walking through the audience and talking. And, you know, in the next uh, part, you know, in part two of Making Donahue that you're going to hear, you're going to hear him talk about how hard it was to keep that audience engaged. It's, right. it's, he, tell, he talks a little bit about things that happened behind the scenes during commercial breaks and how exhausting it was to keep the audience paying attention right. uh, during the commercial breaks. And for those of you who are starved from the lack of Oprah, we're also going to hear from Oprah in the second half and hear Phil Donahue talk about Oprah, who was the person um, who unseated him. He was the king of daytime. And then, of course, the queen arrived. And that's coming up in part two of Making Donahue. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. You know, Colin, Phil Donahue and Oprah really had this split kingdom where daytime television was concerned for a while because his show was in the morning. And he kind of ruled daytime. And then Oprah's show was in the afternoon and she ruled the afternoons. And they were ratings rivals, but they also were being packaged together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Donahue sort of going for close to 20 years by this point when Oprah sort of launches nationally in the mid 80s. So Donahue goes national in the mid 70s and he's sort of at the top of daytime for 10 years or so. And then all of a sudden, this woman looms, as he says, uh, (laughs) named Oprah Winfrey, and comes in from Chicago. And all of a sudden, she's doing amazingly well. And the the guy who's been doing, you know, dominating for about 10 years is up against her. So there's all this talk about the king of daytime being challenged by the queen of daytime. You know, the king is dead, long live the queen sort of stuff that people are talking about in the newspapers. And they were very different hosts. And I asked him about what he thought was the difference between the two of them. She was able to be more intimate with her audience than I was. You know, she could wink and, the, you know, half the audience knew exactly what she meant. Why do you think that was, that the audience had that sort of instant intimacy with her? Uh, it has to do with uh, Oprah. I mean, what's not to love? You know, she she just wove herself into the hearts and minds of uh, her audience. They knew what she was thinking and she knew what they were thinking. And the issues she discussed were obviously issues that were very important to the members of her audience. Also, she was attracting some giant entertainment figures. We did pretty well ourselves, but she you know, what it took, it took us five, six years. People could not figure us out. You know, what is this? You know, people sitting on folding chairs, no band, no, how can, you know, how can this work? And so it took us a long time to catch on. Uh, once we got in New York, then, uh, you know, I wound up on the cover of magazines and suddenly we were somehow legit. Uh, Oprah achieved that uh, success within a few months. I mean, she took off immediately. Do you think some of that, though, was because you'd already laid a groundwork for what a talk show could be? 
Well, she's always been very complimentary to me and has thanked me for opening the door for her. And, and that makes me feel good. You know, before Edison, there was electricity, but there wasn't the light bulb. Before Neil Armstrong, there was a moon, but there wasn't a man on it. And before Phil Donahue, there were talk shows, but the audience and the viewers at home could only just sit there and watch. But Phil changed all that. In the early days... Think Phil of what she's done for the millions of young women around the country. You know, maybe little girls who aspire to, you know, a TV show. The uh, creations that she's been a part of for Broadway. The, the work she's done, the, the good work she's done around the world. Young girls around the world are inspired by Oprah. And that's a very good thing. I, I just think uh, she's one of the most important media personalities in the history of our business. You know, it's interesting because as a fellow host, you have this view of her. But early on, you know, the, the L.A. Times, for instance, dismissed the Oprah Winfrey show. They called it little more than lowbrow Donahue. And they talked about feuding families and male hunting and all in the name of Nielsen hunting. When you look at the early years of your show and you think of the early years of her show, how do you think things differed? I had a lot to learn. I mean, I grew up on my show. You know, a woman once stood up in my audience and asking the guest, I forget what the heck what the subject was, but it was something about oral hygiene. And uh, she wanted to know, you know, what would they do if the left molar didn't uh, blah, blah, blah. And I said, uh, are you married to a dentist? She said, I am a dentist. And I stood there with the egg on my face. But it was, you know, it taught me, um, it taught me about how conditioned I was. I remember I was on a, a board in Dayton for a, an activities center in a black neighborhood. And I'm the liberal, you know, and I remember I, I hired the first black person for our office because she had the biggest afro. I mean, these are the these are some of the superficial things that this, you know, Catholic liberal was going through. You know, I spoke at a black school, and I remember saying, "You people, you people," and the principal said. Before I left, he was walking me to the, out to my car, and he said, "Let me just say to you that uh, saying you people to a black audience." is the worst thing you can say to a black audience. And I'm, I'm suddenly growing up. So that was your early, you see that reflected in the early years of, of your show and, and how your personal experience impacted what you were talking about. When you think about those early shows for the Oprah Winfrey show, when people were saying, oh, this is lowbrow Phil Donahue, do you see her undergoing that same kind of evolution? You know, honestly, I thought Oprah had already evolved, you know? I, don't, I didn't think Oprah had to evolve anywhere. 
And I think she just bursted on the scene probably more maturely shaped at the beginning than I was. Well, you both were on the scene at a time when um, and Oprah Winfrey was was not something people were accustomed to seeing on TV. And one of the Harponians told us a story about a station in Idaho that did a promo for your show and the Oprah Winfrey show set to Ebony and Ivory, and that didn't go over very well. Um, but I'm wondering from your perspective, just how revolutionary was it to have a black woman hosting a national television show at that time? What we did was bring to the daytime audience the kind of show that the audience out there always wanted. And in the same way, I think Oprah filled a great interest that was already there. Female, African-American, somebody that I think presented an image of uh, kindness. I really think many of the women, not black and white and brown, watched Oprah and, you know, they knew what she meant. And I think there was a lot of head nodding back uh, up and down. Yes, 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 for the uh, women at home. So you think that they connected to a shared experience? Well, yeah, and she shared those experiences on the air. And she spoke for millions of young women, not only in this country, but around the world. There was a lot of media coverage about the ratings battle between you and Oprah and how she, quote, unquote, dethroned you. What was your reaction to that coverage? Were you paying attention to it at all? Oh, sure. You can't ignore that. I'm, I'd lie to you if I said I, I did. Well, you know, we didn't talk about it much in the, uh, in the office. I think probably the women who worked for me wanted to... <laughs> They want to bring up a, a subject that might depress me. But remember, I, um, we had done over 5,000 shows, and uh, I was ready. I was ready to take my leave. Well, thank you. I am flattered. You may be seated. <laughs> well, it's true. This is our last... Uh, television program with uh, the Donahue signature on it. After 29 years and more... How did you know it was time? Well, it's a feeling, you know. You, you know, there's only so many times you can button up your shirt and put your tie on and jump out of a cake, you know. And, and I used to work very hard during the commercials just to keep the audience alive. You know, I would touch him and say, come on, you're going to help me now. I need you, don't leave me out here. The idea was to keep the audience. Uh, Jennifer, I, th I, I think you've had this experience. You start the interview and you're all pumped and the guest is up and, and suddenly the audio man comes in and says, just a moment. And he adjusts the uh, microphone, does the test on the microphone and you, you can't get that energy back. Mm. And not only that, you feel that you know, if you make a mistake, you can start over. You lose, you lose the spontaneity of the interview. 
And in, in many ways, uh, that's why I work so hard for the hour. And after over 5,000 of these and 29 years, um, I guess I, I, I wanted to do something else. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. So he did go on to do some other stuff, including a very short-lived talk show on MSNBC. MSNBC. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But he also did a very important interview. Exactly. I mean, it's going to be, in Donahue's career, one of... The things that people remember most about, which is his interview with making Oprah and you. <laughs> I think you're overselling it a bit, but you know, whatever. <laughs> clearly, clearly, we're fans of it because we're spending a lot of time talking right. about it. But, Callan, how did we get this interview? Uh, it was just typical producer stuff where you send out a ton of emails and send out a ton of really friendly sort of phone calls and leave lots of messages. And then uh, I somehow got a lead on his old agent, who then <laughs> I called that office and his assistant. I somehow convinced her to give me Phil Donahue's cell phone number. Uh, I cold called that number a couple times and then finally just got, hello. (laughs) (laughs) I was expecting, call, are you there? (laughs) Um, And it was like, oh, Mr. Donahue, this is Colin McNulty here. I'm a producer at WBZ Chicago. We're making this. uh, He was like, oh, is this about the Oprah thing? And I was like, yes, it it is indeed about the Oprah thing. Everybody, (laughs) everybody in in entertainment knows about the Oprah documentary. (laughs) Right, right. And then I said, yes, said Mr. Donahue, everyone has been talking about you and, you know, how important you were for the evolution of the show. And we're making this mega thing and it would be amazing if you could participate in it he was like yeah sure i'll do it and then um he was like what's your name again i was like kyle mcnulty because ah saints preserve us it makes a little like (laughs) how irish my name sounds uh and then we eventually but he can but you know he can say it because he's probably irish right right mr donahue (laughs) um yes mr donahue thank you and then uh eventually and then he hung up and then we set up the interview to be done from his place in new york city and we had somebody go and record him and then i had you here and jen and and we did the interview and that was was great one thing that listeners should know Mm-hmm. is that we have a lot of inside jokes about this Donahue interview around the office in a, in a nice way, not in a mean way. Right. But he has some verbal mannerisms that are really, really memorable and are now, like, I think a permanent part of, of WBEZ office like banter. That. Right. Like, like, when you don't know the phone number for something to just say... <laughs> On the Baldwin Exchange. The Baldwin Exchange, 775 Spinning wheels. Come on down. <laughs> That's the just, other one. He like he, it's it's so casual, but he like just sums up this whole giant thing in this really sort of like silly little joke. And I, I, he does that throughout the show, and it's really nice. Well, before we go, we just want to say thank you for listening to Making Oprah. And if you reached out, I mean, we've heard from so many of you 
over Twitter and email, and I've even gotten phone calls. I mean, thank you so much for reaching out and telling us how much you enjoyed the podcast. It was a pleasure to make, and we're glad you listened. Yeah, so I think that's it, guys. And, well, and in case people do want to call Jen, Jen's number is 847 Okay, that's really it. And we should say... The Making Oprah is a production of WBEZ Chicago. Our production team includes Colin McNulty, Yay. Joe Dassault, Joel Meyer, and Ben Calhoun. Major production help came from Justin Bull and our now former intern, Annie Nguyen. Special thanks to Trisha Bobita and the WBEZ digital team. And if you enjoyed Making Oprah, tell a friend, tweet about us, or leave us a review in the iTunes store. And make sure to check out Nerdette, where two hosts, Greta Johnson and Trisha Bobita, Nerd out about pop culture, books, TV, movies, anything and everything. Go to nerdettepodcast.com. And from everyone here at Making Oprah, thanks for listening. I'm Jen White. <laughs>